If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Now, as I just said this evening, we find ourselves in uh, our study in Revelation in chapter 20, uh, in what is commonly referred to as the Millennial Kingdom. As we said, the word millennium comes from two Latin words, mille and annum, which together literally mean a thousand years. And that phrase is repeated six times in this one chapter, saying to many, myself included, the repetition by the Holy Spirit indicating that we are not to take this allegorically. These are going to be literal uh, years, literal 1,000-year period. Now, tonight we're going to start with verse 7, which reads, Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, of course, that takes us back to the opening verses of chapter 20, where we read in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Why? You know, I mean, why does God let Satan loose again after he's been bound for a thousand years? The world has been uh, a place of, of peace, a paradise. Why would God release this guy from his prison only to go around the world doing his dirty work again? trying to organize another rebellion? Well, the answer is simple. Because the people who have been born during the Millennial Kingdom have never had to make a choice to willingly follow Jesus in their hearts. Outward conformity, conformity to Jesus' rule is going to be mandatory during His reign on the earth. We know that. But that doesn't mean everyone will inwardly love him and want to obey him from the heart. You understand that? It's kind of like the story of little William, three-year-old boy, whose dad said to him, William, sit down. And he just stood there defiantly. The father said, William, sit down. The little boy just stood there defiant. So third time, the father walks over, puts his hands gently on William's shoulders, it says, William, sit down, as he pressed him down into the chair. To which the little boy responded, well, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. And that's kind of how it's going to be for many people who have been born during the millennial reign of Christ. They will have no choice but to obey him outwardly, but inwardly, many of their, uh, inwardly, many of their hearts will be full of resentment and rebellion. Why? I, I don't even know. It's just bound up in the heart of fallen man. And so Satan is here fulfilling the purpose of God by God allowing him to tempt these people so that they will have the opportunity to exercise their free will in deciding to submit to Jesus' authority willingly from the heart or to rebel against him now openly. Their rebellion has been hidden for a thousand years, but now are they going to manifest that rebellion openly by following the devil in one final rebellion against God? 
Look, God never forces people into heaven. I don't care what some people think or teach or believe. God never forces people into heaven. So this is going to be the final call to the unsaved people of the earth to make a choice. Here it is. What do you want to do? This is where it all comes down to now your free will. Are you, are you going to want to live with me and my kingdom? Because uh, the thousand years is over now. And so we're about ready to move into the eternal state, what we call heaven, all right? Are you going to bow the knee willingly now? You've been forced to for a thousand years because Jesus has been on the throne and he doesn't, hasn't uh, tolerated any rebellion. But now are you going to want to willingly bow the knee to him, receive him as your Lord and King in your heart or not? It's up to you. So again, verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth. Some translations translate that. They went up on a broad plain and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city. Let me stop there. Don't confuse Gog and Magog here with the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. In Ezekiel 38, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. I'll just stop there. In Ezekiel, we see that Gog is the leader of the land of Magog. Okay, that doesn't help us too much. Well, it does, because Magog speaks of the descendants of Noah's grandson, Magog. He's listed in Genesis 10, verse 2. They later became known as the Scythians, those that inhabited the region north of the Black and Caspian Seas, who were the ancestors of the people of Russia. So Gog would be the leader of Russia, and Magog would refer to its people who will lead a group of Muslims, according to Ezekiel 38, who will lead a group of Muslim nations to battle against Israel. That war will probably take place sometime before the tribulation period begins. Before the tribulation period begins. I don't know if it's going to happen before or after the rapture. We don't, it's not nailed down like that. Ezekiel 38, many believe the, the language there says, though, that uh, this war will happen sometime before the tribulation period officially begins. Now, many read Revelation 20, verse 8, with its reference to Gog and Magog, and they try to associate it with the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. You can see why they would do that. In that, they believe that Revelation 20, verse 8 is teaching that the battle mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 9 happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's a big difference, all right? But listen, guys, these are two different battles in that the war of Ezekiel 38 and 9, in the war of Ezekiel 38 and 9, the armies come primarily from the north, from the area of Russia, and involve only, involve only a few nations of the earth, mostly, again, Muslim nations. But the battle of Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9, will involve, listen, all nations sending armies from every direction on the face of the earth. 
Furthermore, nothing in the context of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is similar to the battle of Revelation 20, uh, as there is no mention of Satan tempting anyone or of any millenni millennial conditions existing on the earth at that time. Also, Ezekiel uh, chapter 39, verses 4 and verse 17 describes the invaders in that battle perishing, listen, on the mountains of Israel. But according to Revelation 20, verse 9, the rebels in this battle will be destroyed on a broad plain. And as I said, the timing of each of these battles is quite different. Again, the battle in Ezekiel 38 and 9 comes before the tribulation period. And the one mentioned in Revelation 20 coming at the end of the millennial kingdom. So they're separated by at least a thousand years. So why does John in Revelation 20 make reference to Gog and Magog with regard to this final battle? Well, the reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 could simply be looking back. In other words, the Holy Spirit will often use these things to draw our attention back. Often in prophecy, what you have is initially a short-term partial fulfillment of a prophecy, but then there's an ultimate long-term fulfillment. And that could be what's going on here, that the battle in Ezekiel 38-9 is a little preview of another battle that's coming much larger and, and much bigger in scope, okay? Um, it could be that you know the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention back as we read Revelation 20, drawing our attention back to Ezekiel 38 and 9 by bringing up Gog and Magog to tell us that what happened in Ezekiel, actually that hasn't happened yet, it's yet future, but what will happen in that prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 9 is a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing, a kind of preview of things to come. Also, guys, it may be the usage of Gog and Magog in this passage is similar to our usage of the term Waterloo. What does that mean? Well, we know that Napoleon was defeated at the famed Battle of Waterloo. And that became a term that has come to signify a decisive or final battle of defeat. Gog and Magog biblically could take on that dimension where it's just signifying the ultimate final battle, all right? So too, I believe, the reference to Gog and Magog in this passage speaks of Satan's final battle against God and his people, a battle that becomes his own personal Waterloo, if you will, signifying his final defeat and his ultimate demise. But also we discover, keep this in mind, we also discover from Amos 7, verse 1. Don't bother turning to it. It only reads this way in the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? It was the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek done by 70 scholars. That's what Septuagint means, 70. Done around 270 B.C. Because remember now, the common language, uh, the Grecians took over uh, and Hellenized the world, so Greek... Alexander the Great had a tremendous impact on that part of the world. Even after the Grecian Empire fell to the Romans, most of the world still kept speaking Greek. That's how powerful their influence was. And uh, so Hebrew had become almost a dead language. The priests spoke it, but the common man, common Jews, they spoke Greek. So, so that Jewish people could get into their own scriptures again and read them, 
they commissioned 70 elders to translate uh, the Hebrew uh, scriptures into Greek. Again, the Septuagint. That was what Jesus used when he uh, preached and quoted scripture. He quoted from the Septuagint. But here's the thing. In the Septuagint, Amos chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that Gog is the title of the leader of a powerful demon army. Now, I went online and I, I pulled up a copy of the Septuagint and I read it to make sure I had the facts straight. And sure enough, uh, it, it, it tells us that it, it gives us the, uh, the um, impression it calls the demons locusts, but it's because they have the ability to just destroy. Okay, and uh, the leader was uh, a, um, a, a demonic leader named Gog. That being the case, it could be that the reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, it could be it's referring spiritually to the same demonic forces working behind the scenes with regard to the prophecy of Ezekiel. Well, the same demonic hordes could be working in this final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. And that's why it could be just a spiritual title for the demons and their leader, a very powerful demonic force, uh, and their leader, a entity named Gog. Uh, and of course, they'd never die. They go on forever, these creatures. And so what demons will be at work in the battle of Ezekiel 38-9 could be the same group that will be at work at the end of the millennial kingdom. So verse 7. Again, after the thousand years were complete, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. It's a lot of people. A lot of people. We've uh, made reference to these things before, so I'm not going to explain them. I'll just throw them out again. But during the Millennial Kingdom, there is going to be the greatest population explosion in the history of the world. There are those that believe that at the end of the thousand years, the earth might contain as many as 100 billion people. How could that be? Well, the earth is going to be turned into a utopian tropical paradise during this time, where the earth's climate will be restored to the time prior to the flood, when we know that the earth was a very different place uh, with regard to climate and things, there were no harsh climactic areas, very uh, cold areas and hot areas. The whole uh, earth was a tropical uh, environment, all right? And there's a lot of reasons we know that. Uh, but during the millennial kingdom, uh, the earth's climate is going to be returned to the way it was before the flood. Food will be in abundance. Sickness will be either non-existent or very rare. People will be able to live anywhere they want in the face of the earth, because again, there won't be any harsh climates. You can live wherever you want. Be plenty of room, even for 100 billion people, believe it or not, uh, across the face of the earth. And, and it won't be crowded, because the earth is big enough to hold. If you, if you can use all the earth you know, to live anywhere you want, 100 billion people is not going to be that big a deal. Um, there's going to be no wars during this time. Crime and injustice will not be tolerated as the people of this world will live under, listen, the perfect and absolutely righteous government and reign of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only all of that, but God will restore the earth's atmospheric canopy so that harmful radiation from outer space will be shielded 
from those living upon the earth at that time, allowing most people to live the length of life spoken of in the Bible before the flood came, upwards of 900 years. Say, so how is that possible? Well, I'm not a scientist, but from what I've been able to gather, when God first created the, uh, the world, um, he divided the waters from the waters, remember? So you had the waters in the face of the earth divided by the atmosphere, where the air we breathe, the, where, where the birds fly. And then in the upper atmosphere, there was another water blanket uh, of, of very small um, water uh, vapor. And what that did was it kept the, ultra, the um, gamma and ultraviolet and all these other harmful uh, radiation from outer space from getting in because what happens is when the, when God brought the flood, he not only broke up the fountains of the deep, he, op he pulled down the windows of heaven. And that allowed all of this radiation from space that had been shielded, we had been shielded from, to flood the atmosphere. That radiation began to jam DNA so that cells didn't reproduce the way God designed them to reproduce. Uh, lifespans were, were dramatically decreased. Right after the flood, Noah and his family lived over, a, over 900, or excuse me, not Noah, but uh, before the flood, people were living over 900 years routinely. After the flood, I think Noah lived to be 650 years, it says, but then it was 550, 450, 350, 250. The lifespan began to drop every generation. And that's because you had all this radiation coming into the Earth's atmosphere. If God restores the canopy in the atmosphere, which again shields out harmful radiation from space, uh, you're going to have um, many people living over 900 years. I, I think that there will be a good number that will live the entire thousand years until the millennial kingdom is over. In fact, Isaiah 65 verse 20 says, No more during this period of time, the millennial kingdom, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die uh, at 100 years old. A child, a person dies at 100, they're going to be considered a child. So most people are going to make it the entire time. Now guys, all of this again is going to cause the earth population to explode um, like never before in human history. I want you to understand this though. The people born during the millennial kingdom are not going to be born redeemed. They're going to be born on the earth like we were born on the earth. And that is with a sinful fallen nature. These people will grow up, they'll get married, they'll have kids. And all of the folks living in the millennial kingdom are going to be forced to outwardly... I'm talking about now those born as unbelievers. We'll have our glorified bodies, okay? Uh, Old Testament saints, church saints, tribulation saints, we'll all have our glorified bodies. But there will be people alive when Jesus returns that uh, escape the Antichrist, they still have their physical bodies, and they'll be allowed to save people to enter into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. They will marry, uh, have children. The children will grow up, get married, have kids. Uh, there's going to be a tremendous uh, uh, explosion of population during this time. But everybody is going to be forced to uh, outwardly conform to the Lord Jesus Christ's rules, his righteous reign during the thousand-year uh, this thousand-year period. No rebellion will be tolerated. How do I know that? Well, Psalm 2, verse 9, Revelation 2, verse 27, chapter 12, verse 5, chapter 19, verse 15, all tell us that Jesus Christ will rule uh, on the earth with a rod of iron. And what that means is, and it goes on to say, and as a powder, uh, you know, shatters a, a marred or defective uh, pot or whatever he's made, right? on the spinning wheel, 
Uh, the Lord is going to pop those who, you know, cause rebellion or whatever it is. He's not going to tolerate that. And so if, if they, you know, step out of line, I don't know when, where the line is, how badly you got to step out of line during the kingdom before he pops you and removes you from the earth, but he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He'll, he'll be the ultimate, listen, benevolent dictator. The Bible calls him despotes. This is where we get our word despot from. In our minds, a despot is always an evil ruler. But what it is, is he's an absolute ruler. You can have a good despot. Somebody who is really righteous and rules with, you know, unchallenged. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, guys, incredibly, during this thousand years, you're going to have many who will not give their hearts to Jesus and be born again as the millennial kingdom progresses. thousand years. Talk about having time to receive Christ, right? But many will not receive him, which explains why Satan will be able to gather a great army of rebels from all over the world at the close of the kingdom age, which is what we're reading about. The truly tragic thing to think about is that after living in paradise for a thousand years, with all of these ideal conditions and with Jesus, the perfect king, on the throne, once given the opportunity, I got my notes millions, but I think it's probably going to be billions. If it's like the sand of the seashore, all these rebels, and there's 100 billion people maybe on the earth at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, I think it's probably going to be billions when given the opportunity will choose to follow Satan in an attempt hard to imagine in an attempt to overthrow Jesus as their king. And at that time, Satan's going to be able to get many of those living in the millennium to echo the cry of Jerusalem as recorded in Luke 19, verse 14. We will not have this man reign over us. Wow. Amazing. You might be thinking, why will the Lord allow this to happen? Well, because God is love. And guys, love requires a choice. Look, if my wife agreed to marry me to marry me simply because I was the only man on earth, or because I held a gun to her head and said, marry me or else, well, that relationship wouldn't be based on love. Because love, if it's going to be genuine, has to be freely given and received. It can't be coerced. It can't be forced. Right? For a thousand years, it's only been Jesus. It's only been Jesus. Satan has been bound. So God lets Satan loose for a short season in order to give people a choice. And guys, if you think about it, in one sense, the millennial kingdom will sum up and prove all that God has said about the fallen heart of man during various periods of human history. God said in Jeremiah, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. God said in his word that fallen man is inherently evil, inherently evil. Jesus made reference to this in Luke 11. You remember it. He said, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give, will that father give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will that father give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will his father offer him a scorpion? Listen to this. 
Verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, the implication who is absolutely not evil, but holy and righteous, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So that's what the Bible says about fallen man. We are inherently evil. There's nothing good in us. Paul said, in me that is in my flesh there dwells what? No good thing. No good thing. Of course, modern man, having grown up on psychology and all it teaches, modern man says, I'm not basically evil. I'm basically a good person. It's my environment or my upbringing or maybe both that has made me do bad things. I, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm a victim. You've heard that, right? And so to silence man once and for all from the excuse that he is not really responsible for the evil things that he does as he tries to blame everyone and everything else for his sins, right? Even Adam, the father of us all, humanly speaking. You know, you've heard the, maybe somebody say, why am I being punished for Adam's sin? If I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have eaten that fruit. Really. Well, you know what? God says, you think you're getting a raw deal? You think I'm unfair? All right, let's test this out, this theory you have, that, you know, you're just a victim of your environment, right? Forgetting that the first man fell in the perfect environment and had no fall in nature when he sinned. But God says, okay. He goes ahead and puts man in a paradise. A perfect environment for, what, not a week or two, a thousand years where Jesus Christ is literally reigning over the whole earth from Jerusalem. A paradise, just like he did with Adam and Eve. But after a thousand years of living in heaven on earth, many will choose to turn against God and try to overthrow him when given the chance as Satan tempts them to follow him in one final rebellion against God. Look, guys, the perfect environment will never produce a perfect heart. And by the way, man is not the product of his environment. I mean, I'm not saying that a person's environment can't influence them in some way, but it doesn't force them to be anything they don't really want to be. Sure, if you have a heart that wants to do evil, you're put in an evil environment, you're going to find a lot of evil to do. I was just reading, though, uh, this afternoon as I was doing my study, checking the news, there's a gentleman, I wish I would have written, written it down, but you can go online and check it out, African-American gentleman, who is uh, the uh, lieutenant governor for the North Carolina, South Carolina. A few years ago, he was completely destitute, you know, really poor. He said, I grew up in a town where it was violence. It was just a bad place. My dad was an alcoholic. He used to beat my mom all the time. But she was a godly woman, a woman of prayer, and she prayed for us. And I got saved in that environment, and God gave me the grace to pursue an education, and his testimony is amazing. I thought, well, here's a perfect example. And it's just one of millions of people across the world where people want to say, well, it's their environment. They, they are the way they are because they are victims of a bad environment. There's a plenty of stories of people 
who have grown up in the most horrendous conditions possible, who went on to be some of the most godly, successful people that have ever walked the face of the earth, and many a person who grew up in great affluence, whose parents were loaded and millions, and they grew up as career criminals. Look, I'm not saying your environment doesn't affect you at all. It doesn't, but it just doesn't force you to be something you don't want to be. That's a misnomer. That's, that's not true. And so God is proving that, look, man, psychologists are always saying if we can just put people in the perfect environment, they'd be perfect people. That is ridiculous. Again, ignoring completely that God put Adam and Eve in the perfect environment, paradise, and they still blew it. Again, God is teaching us that, look, we are not the product of our environment. We are the product of our fallen heart. And you can, you know, overcome your environment if you want to walk with God. Um, but your environment can be wonderful. You could be wealthy. And yet you could do some of the most incredibly heinous things if you, uh, you know, want to, if you want to. Again, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so God never tries to, listen, repair or rehabilitate a fallen human heart. He simply replaces it with a new heart at the new birth, right? Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. He's talking about the new covenant. Old covenant, I wrote my laws on tablets of stone. But external laws written on tablets of stone really can't affect the heart of man. And the problem is the heart. So the way I'm going to do this in the new covenant, I'm not going to write my laws on external stones, tablets of stone. I'm going to write them in the new heart I'm going to give you once you receive me as your Savior, right? All right, Revelation 20, verse 9. And the devil and his rebel army now, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured him. Guys, the term the saints doesn't um, encompass all the saints on the earth at this time. Who are the saints? Three groups we've already talked about. Old Testament, church, tribulation. And they're spread out over the entire planet because we are serving the Lord as leaders of various cities. Remember, your faith will make you rule over ten you've you've you know you've increased your talents by you know tenfold. I'll make you come enter the joy of your Lord and I'll make you uh, rulers over ten cities. So in the millennial kingdom, we will be rewarded for the faithfulness with which we serve God right now by God giving us uh, areas of responsibility. I don't know, mayors of cities in the millennial kingdom, something like that, right? Um, so when it says the saints, it doesn't mean all saints living um, in the world at that time. It could be possibly a reference to the 100... I'll tell you why I believe this. It could be a reference to the 144,000 Jewish believers in Christ that served him during the tribulation period and were eventually martyred by the Antichrist. These could possibly be the saints spoken of here who will live in and around the beloved city, the city of Jerusalem, which will be the place of Messiah's throne. He's going to reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. It will be the place of Messiah's throne and the capital 
of the millennial world during the kingdom age. And the reason I say this, and I think this is a good, uh, a, a good interpretation, is because of what it, we read in Revelation 14. You know, you're in the neighborhood, might as well turn there. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Revelation 14, starting with verse 4. These are the ones, I was talking about the 144,000. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, where is He going to be? In Jerusalem. So that's where they have to hang out, because wherever He goes, uh, they go. It's like he, they're like His special royal guard, Okay. So they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the what? Throne of God. Where's the throne of God going to be in the, in the millennial kingdom? Jerusalem. So I think that this could be a reference to the uh, tribulation saints, the 144,000 in particular. But guys, whoever these saints are, they will be enjoying the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, when the attack comes. When the attack comes, Satan and his hordes. And like Armageddon a thousand years earlier, which we studied in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, like the battle of Armageddon a thousand years earlier, this battle is not going to really be a battle at all. In reality, it's going to be an execution. As the rebel forces, move, uh, motivated and led by Satan, move in for the, uh, for the attack on the holy city, John says, I saw fire come down from heaven, and they were all incinerated. There's no battle. How deceived do you have to be to think you can go to battle against God and win? Well, when Jesus came back, the whole earth, most people were being led by the Antichrist, and they thought they can go to battle against Jesus on behalf of the Antichrist and win. There wasn't really a battle there. He just spoke the word, and they were vaporized, blood everywhere, right? At uh, that time, uh, Jesus has returned. He takes the Antichrist and false prophet and throws them alive into the lake of fire. Now, that was before the start of the millennial kingdom. Now we're at the end. Now we're at the end. And so Satan is released from prison, from Hades, where he goes around the face of the whole earth, and boy, he's able to tempt so many people. How many rebels, really, after living a thousand years in a perfect environment with a perfect king, I mean, just peace, prosperity, uh, justice. But after all that time, when Satan is released, and he says, hey, come follow me. You don't have to put up with this. People as much as the sands of the seashores follow the devil it's amazing to me the fallen heart of man really something fire comes down from heaven john says and devoured them so satan's forces will be physically killed their souls will be cast into hades the temporary place of incarceration we'll learn a lot more about that next time but um, their souls will be cast into hades the temporary place of incarceration for all unbelieving dead where they will wait their final sentencing in hell, which will take place shortly. In fact, next week we'll look at it, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. All right, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, 
where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented night, a day and night, forever and ever. Listen, so the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's hell. Where he won't be ruling as the king of hell. You know, we have these, um, this literature, you know, and um, it kind of uh, uh, has made Lucifer the king of hell. He's the god of this world right now. But when he gets cast into hell, he won't be ruling. He'll be suffering more than anybody else. All right? So we just need to get that, straighten that out, okay? Uh, he'll be tormented more than any person in the lake of fire or hell. But he's going to be joined there, or actually I should say this, he will join them, his cronies, the beast and false prophet, who by that time, now they were cast into hell, before the millennial kingdom began. Now we're at the end. A thousand years has passed, right? And um, it makes reference to them where the beast and false prophet were, are, are. This tells us in that place of torment they've been suffering for a thousand years. Where the beast and fa false prophet are, verse 10, chapter 20, verse 10. Not were. The fact that the Antichrist and false prophet are still being tormented by this time in the lake of fire or hell after a thousand years refutes the false doctrine of annihilationism, which we've talked about, which believes that, look, when somebody's cast into the lake of fire, as soon as their body hits the fire, they are incinerated, they go out of existence, they don't suffer forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that they will be tormented forever and ever and have no rest day or night. And right here we have proof of that in that the false prophet and the Antichrist are still suffering after a thousand years and will continue to suffer for all eternity. Now guys, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time, got a few minutes, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time this evening setting up, setting things up for next week's study. It's a big study, a very important passage, which we'll look at next time. And I know, I know that the last time we met, we talked about hell. And, um, but let me just say a few more things on the subject, a subject that many churches today will not touch if they even believe hell is a real place today. That's how bad it's gotten, okay? And the main, main reason that people have such a hard time, and some of this is review, so please just bear with me, um, the main reason that people have such a hard time dealing with the reality of hell I think for the most part, is because they can't reconcile it with the concept of a loving God. Even though the Bible says God didn't make hell for people. He made hell for the devil and his angels. But if people want to follow the ultimate rebel, you know, Satan, they want to follow him, they'll follow him all the way to the place that was created for him to spend eternity. That's not God's fault. A God of love isn't making anyone go to hell. They're choosing to go there. We've talked about that, right? But also... People have a hard time dealing with the concept of hell because it's just easier for them to dismiss the existence of hell than it is to get their life right with God. Their reasoning goes something like this. If hell doesn't exist, then I have nothing to worry about, and I can go on living the way I'm living. I can go on living any way I want. There's no hell. There's no consequences, right? So I don't have to worry about anything. And so they bury their head in the sand and pretend hell isn't a real thing. Now, 
many years ago, and I'm doing this from memory, and I hope I remember this accurately, but I was doing a study on Darwin, okay? Charles Darwin, who came up with a whole, you know, evolution thing, right? It's interesting how he came up with this. Uh, on the Galapagos Islands, he was sick, and he had a, like a, let's say a, it was a, a dream, but it was like a hallucination. And, and this whole thing came to him, okay? But before he actually had the dream confirming what he was thinking, he, somebody said he was actually a pretty religious guy. But when it came to the doctrine of hell, he was so burdened that his friends and family would go to a place like that, he decided he was going to try to explain the existence of everything apart from God, which would have erased the existence of hell. No God, no hell. And I think that was one of the things that, and I could be wrong, uh, you can check it out for yourself, tell me if I've, I'm mistaken. I'm, I'm almost positive that's what I remember. Uh, there's a lot of other details, but I remember that. He was uh, originally kind of a religious guy, and uh, but he was so burdened about the reality of a place called hell on his family and friends, he didn't want to think about them going to a place like that. Um, and so he developed this whole thing where he came up with this whole explanation of how everything came to be without the existence of God. I'll let you run with that, okay? But um, again, a lot of people, the way they deal with hell is to just pretend it doesn't exist. Oh, I can't believe that. You know, as we talked about a survey years ago where 76% um, of people, it might be less now because we've entered into a very, uh, you know, atheistic period in our country's history, but um, at that time, let's go back about 20 years, 76% of the people living in the United States believed in a, a literal heaven. Only 6% believed in a literal hell. And that's because people don't want to, they, they believe in God, they believe in heaven, but they don't want to believe in the reality of a place called hell. And uh, a lot of folks just ignore it. It doesn't exist. Why do they say that? Because they want to live unrighteously. Paul the Apostle talked about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. They suppress the truth of God, but he's spoken, he's written it in, in their hearts. But they suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. I mean, people can joke about hell, right? You know, they um, you know, they can joke about hell, they can pretend it's not real, it's not hot, it's not forever. None of that matters what people think say about hell it only matters what god says about hell and as we have said before jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the bible in fact he talked about it more than he talked about heaven or even love why because he didn't want people to go there he knew it's real he created it for the devil and his angels it's a real place jesus spoke about it all the time and yet today, most of evangelism, most all evangelism, I should say, is based on the love of God. You hardly hear any messages anymore based on evangelizing, based on coming judgment. Which, if you study the book of Acts, that was the theme of all apostolic preaching. It wasn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's flee the wrath to come. That was the heart of it. 
The world is going to be judged. And if you don't come to Christ and take refuge in him as your ultimate city of refuge, where you hide in Christ, whereas the judgment passes over you, this is what Passover signified, right? Blood of the lamb put in the doorpost, the lentil of the house caused the angel of death, God's judgment to pass over that house. You put the blood of Christ on the doorpost and lintel of your heart, so to speak, causes the coming judgment to pass over you. You're safe in Christ. But see, that scares people. Makes them uncomfortable. So a lot of pastors have watered it down. They'd rather focus on the love of God. Because who doesn't want to think about God's love? And I love to think about God's love. And he, is, he doesn't just have a lot of love. God is love, right? 1 John 4, 8. I love that. But you know what? We can't slice and dice God and only take the parts of his character that we like. we got to accept him for who he is. Yes, he's loving and kind and merciful and gracious. We thank him for those attributes. But he's holy and righteous, a God of justice and so on. And we have to take those attributes into consideration too. There is no fear of God anymore in people's eyes. That's why people do the things they do in our culture. The devil has successfully um, expunged from our national conscience the fact that God is a righteous God who is going to punish sin. And that fear should cause people to think twice about living an, an evil, wicked life. Sure, if the love of God will motivate you to be a godly person, so be it. As a, as, as, you know, as a father, when my kids were little, I would much rather they obeyed me because they loved me. Oh, Dad, if I do this, I'm going to hurt Dad's feelings. I'm not going to do it because he's told us not to do it. For them to obey me as their father because they loved me and didn't want to hurt me, that's the ultimate obedience. But if that didn't motivate them to do what was right, keep the family rules, then they needed to obey me because they feared the consequences. And that's how it is with God. He would much rather have people obey him because they love him. But rather than not obey him at all, he would rather they obey him out of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the what? Hate, evil. We don't have that anymore. There is no fear of consequences in their eyes, the psalmist said. And that's why the world does the wicked things that it does. And it's the church's fault. We are the moral conscience of a society, right? And if the church has watered everything down because we don't want to upset people, why? Well, because then they won't come to my church and they won't give money to my church. And and we want to build a big church and have a lot of a lot of people donating money so we can put that Starbucks in or whatever. I'm not against churches that have Starbucks, really not. But that seems to be the thing that so many people are gravitating to. How many amenities can this? Church provide that. That's the church I want to go to. How about truth? Does that matter anymore? What about the word of God being taught uh, in, uh, in um, purity? Is that, does that matter anymore to people? I don't know. Some people it does. You guys it does. I know that. So hellfire and damnation preaching. Do you know Jesus Christ was the first hellfire and damnation preacher? So wait a minute. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was technically the last prophet of the Old Testament period. The law and the prophets were up until John. Jesus Christ was the first preacher of the New Covenant. And he talked about hell more than anybody else. But listen, you can preach hell with love and compassion. 
Okay, you you don't have to be some fire breathing, red eyed, you know, crazy person. That's not our Lord Jesus Christ. He talked about hell, but I, I would imagine he did it with such love in his eyes, compassion. That's why I've come, so that you wouldn't have to go to a place like that forever. Come to me. I want to protect you. You can preach on hell with love and compassion, right? I know Jesus did that. But he often talked about hell and heaven in the same sentence. We, we've talked about this, Matthew 25, verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in that verse, Matthew 25, 46, he, he not only did he talk about both heaven and hell in the same sentence, but he said they were both eternal. Now look, people don't have to like that. That there is a real place, sure, everyone likes heaven. Heaven's eternal, I'm all for it. But what about hell? Well, I don't believe in hell. Well, see, you don't get to pick and choose your truth, okay? You don't have to like the fact that hell is real and eternal. You don't have to like it, but you're going to have to live it someday. What do I mean? You're going to have to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. And hell doesn't go away because you don't believe in it. I mean, you know, we try to tell people, look, you would be wise, very wise, to accept what the Bible says about heaven and hell and adjust your life accordingly while there's still time. And what do I mean by that? While there's still time to repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today's the day of salvation, right? God has given you time right now. But here's the problem with most people as we wind down. Here's the problem with most people today. They don't understand. We're, we're laughing at everything. We're laughing at sin. We're laughing at hell. You know, I told you we went to the Grand Cayman Islands for our 30th anniversary, right? And we stayed on the big island, Grand Cayman. And they have a town on that island, a, a literal town called hell. Now, I wasn't about to go there, given the satisfaction of... They did that as a tourist thing, novelty. because yeah, And I'm sure that they... And I looked online, they do have a gift shop, at least one. I am sure in that gift shop they have t-shirts that say, you know, come to hell. I, I, visit, I went to hell and back. Go to hell. I spent the night partying in hell. Whatever they... You know, that kind of thing, right? Ha, 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 big joke. The devil loves it when we laugh at sin. He really loves it when we laugh at hell. Like it's a joke. It's not a joke. It's a serious, serious thing. But many people today, because everything is now a joke, well, they, they don't understand the holiness of God or the severity of their situation as a violator of his laws. I know that most people today think like, like this. Let me, let me tell you what they think. I know I'm not perfect, they'll tell you. But I believe I'm good enough to get into heaven because I believe that I've done more good things than bad things in my life. And so when I stand before God, he's going to take all the good things I've done, put them on one side of the scale, all the bad things I've done, put it on the other side of the scale, and I know that my good deeds will outweigh the bad, and God will say, you're in, come on. That's... Wishful thinking, that's not biblical truth. But that's a very common way of looking at the problem of sin today. Many people have that concept where the good deeds cancel out the bad ones. And, and let me just examine that reasoning just for a minute, okay? Because we've talked about this before. First of all, guys, that logic 
wouldn't even work in a court of law on earth with a flawed human judge presiding. Imagine that you lived your whole life pretty much as a law-abiding citizen, okay? I don't know, maybe in your late 40s, you had a kind of a midlife crisis. A lot of folks are having those nowadays, okay? And you decided to do something crazy. And so you just one day stole a car, took it for a joyride, because you wanted to just be, see what it felt like to be a bad boy or a bad girl, just for a little while. I'm always goody two-shoes. And then it comes the red lights and pulled over, and you were arrested. You stand before the judge, and here's your line of defense. Well, Your Honor, you shouldn't hold me responsible for that. You should let me go free. Why? This is the first time I've ever stolen a car. And surely all the years that I kept the law should work in my favor so that this one violation of the law shouldn't be a problem. Because all my good deeds, all my years of obeying the laws of our town should tip the scale in my favor, right? What do you think the judge is going to say? What are you, nuts? You don't get any brownie points for keeping the law, but if you break the law, you have to pay. I mean, again, that defense wouldn't work in a human court with a human judge. How much, how much less would it work in the Supreme Court of the universe with a righteous judge of all the earth on the throne presiding? And yet, that is the very defense many are planning to use when they stand before God someday. Well, Lord, I know that I'm a good person. Not perfect, but I believe good enough that when you look at all the good things I've done over the course of my life, you will see that I'm a good person and you'll let me into heaven. What they don't realize is, well, first of all, Proverbs 20, verse 6, most men, most women will pro proclaim each their own goodness. Everyone thinks they're basically a good person, right? Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single person. That was out of the NLT second edition. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God, as we have said last time, was sinless perfection. All of us are not perfect. We've all committed sin. And if you are not perfect, you are not good enough to get into heaven. James said in James 2 verse 10, if you keep all the commandments of God your entire life but break only one, you're a lawbreaker, and you will not get into heaven. Some people say, well, that's ridiculous. Then. How could anybody possibly be saved? Didn't the disciples ask Jesus that in Matthew 19? What did he say? Well, if you try real hard, come on, just, come on, try really hard. You can make it. No. He said, with men, it's impossible. Getting into heaven by their own good works. But with God, all things are possible. Because God sent his son to come down and die in our place. He paid our sins in full. He was and is the beautiful, sinless Lamb of God whose death took away. It didn't just cover sins like the Old Covenant, the blood of animals, goats, and bulls, and things, temporarily covered sin until the next transgression. But Jesus Christ, his blood took away our sins once and for all, right? Guys, we're done, but let me just say this. The Bible says in Adam all die. Well, when we're born into the earth, onto the earth, 
physically. We are born as descendants of Adam. In Adam, I'll die. It isn't about living a good life and transcending the sins of Adam. The human race has fallen and it can't get up. That's just the way it is. So what do we do? We have to change families. The family of Adam is cursed. In Adam all die. In Christ all should be made alive. We have to change families. Can't do that in the physical realm, but God allows it by accepting Christ as our Savior. And at that point we are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and death into God's marvelous light, his kingdom of life and light in Christ. All bear Adam's guilt, and we are born with original sin, the sin of our father Adam. And then every single day, every person in this, uh, in this world adds to that guilt by continuing to break God's commandments. Every single day. Proving that we are guilty sinners, not good people. Turn to John, and we'll, and we'll just look at a couple more scriptures. John 3. And you know it. Guys, Jesus didn't come to pardon good people that just needed a little help. He came to pardon condemned sinners that were already pronounced guilty by God. John 3, 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, listen, is condemned already. People are waiting to have their day in court. I got news for them. The case has already been decided. The verdict rendered guilty. Guilty. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, guys, only Jesus, the sinless Son of God in human form, could take our judgment and atone for our sins completely. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, he desires all men, all women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ entered the world on a search and rescue mission. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He is looking for us. He is the good shepherd out looking for lost sheep, right? Oh, oh but I found Jesus. You didn't find nothing. What do you mean I found Jesus? You weren't even looking for Jesus. No one pursues God in their fallen state. He comes looking for us. Oh, but I, I had a desire to go to church and read the Bible. Who do you think was putting that in your heart? That was God calling you. And as he called you, the conviction came. Maybe I should go to church. Maybe I should open the Bible. That was all him looking for us, pursuing us. Give me one more scripture, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Well, that goes to all mankind. God is saying, I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. I sent my son to die that people wouldn't have to go to hell. I am not. People think that you know God is just looking for any reason to throw us into hell. Well, that is so ridiculous. It's so untrue. 
He came down that we might have life. He paid our, he was beaten for our sins, bruised for our, our iniquities. The chastisement, the scourging was upon his back that brought me peace with God. By his stripes I'm healed. It's all about him. He loved us so much he was willing to die for us. And so, as we would say, and I know the, I know you guys by name, so I, you're all saved, so that really blows my evangelistic uh, altar call, all right? Unless you want to get saved again. But I would say if I was talking to a group of people I didn't know, many of them obviously not believers, I would say, look, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, if God's tugging at your heart, and that tug is his conviction, that tug is his way of saying, I love you, come to me. If he is tugging on your heart, do not harden your heart to his voice, as the Bible says. Don't put off making the decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to another day because that day may never come. James, James says, our life is but a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put off till tomorrow what you must do right now because you may not get it tomorrow. May God give grace. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. And yes, Lord, your word talks about hell quite a bit. But not because you enjoy sending anybody there. You talk about it because it's real and you don't want anyone to go there. Lord, I would rather love somebody into the kingdom. I would rather preach your love that would save them. But Lord, if they won't get saved by or through your love, I pray they get saved out of fear of hell. As I look back on my life, I think that was the thing that ultimately caused me to get saved. I, I, I became at one point terrified of hell. And that's okay. Whatever causes us to repent, whether it's love or fear, as long as we repent and don't go to hell, it doesn't matter what motivates us to come to you. So Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. As we are in the home stretch of this incredible book, we ask you to keep blessing and opening our understanding. We just thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.